Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. A most extraordinary book has just been released. It's called Extinct, and it contains artistic impressions of wildlife now lost to this continent. Benjamin Gray is the author of this book, which captures 39 of Australia's unique animal species, uh, most of which are now gone from this world or teetering on the edge of extinction. Uh, The images in the book are not of the kind you might expect from a sort of science book, but instead are depicted by fine artists from all all over Australia and also internationally. And Benjamin, it's really great to have you on Triple R. Um, Benjamin's an ecologist and a historian. And uh, yeah, welcome. Yes, good morning, Kalia. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I think you're the writer of this book, but if, I, if the inscription to Triple R on the inside cover is anything to go by, you have um, some artistic flair yourself, I think, Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a hobby, a hobby artist, but uh, there's none of my works included in the book, except for the uh, the inscription, yeah, dedicated to Triple R. <laughs> I loved seeing that. Actually, it was one of the last things I saw this morning when I was um, picking it up, and uh, yeah, it just uh, made me very happy. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, tell us about this project. Uh, what is it that you set out to do? I, I, I mean, you could just—it's a—it's a beautifully bound book. It's hardcover. It's absolutely gorgeously produced. So let's just take that for granted. But what what did you actually set out to do? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so I guess I had the idea almost. Uh, three years ago now and I guess I wanted to achieve a number of things and it, the project evolved as the artworks came in and uh, you know the research and took the research and learned more about each of the extinct species but I guess I wanted to celebrate the diversity of uh, unique animals that we have in Australia and also celebrate the diversity of approaches to the visual arts that we have in Australia particularly in the modern sort of modern time uh, and then of course so centering all of these different approaches to art around the central theme of animals in the first place, but then the added layer of complexity that all of the animals in the book are actually extinct just points to sort of the consequences and significance of extinction. Also provides a visual record for a lot of these animals where one actually hasn't previously existed. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I actually found that um, quite fascinating that 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 some of the the animals that yeah that the artists have illustrated didn't have they didn't have pictures to go by. What, what were they using instead? Were they using um, words to describe them, or or how did they kind of come to their to their picture? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So a lot of them went extinct before photography existed, and also um, some of the sort of early naturalists to the only depictions we have of a lot of these species. So they're already drawings to go off. But then, yeah, for the ones that there's absolutely no visual imagery, I sort of look into the science. So there's obviously papers that have been published around maybe like the skull morphology or certain aspects of these animals that we that we understand. And then, you know, uh, describing more, uh, most related species, so that might have the same skull size as this type of hopping mouth, and let's have a look at that to see if we can recreate the, um, the depiction of this now extinct species. But also the artists were given sort of a lot of creative license, and, and so they were interpreting the facts that we were able to find and creating their reconstructions of these, of these species from that. Yeah, and you write in your introduction that, yeah, when it comes to the facts that you were able to um, uncover, mostly it was through the lens of um, non-Aboriginal people, um, early um, ecologists, uh, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, and there's a sort of a tension there, even to call these animals Australian animals, even though so many of them are unique to this continent. Can you sort of talk around some of those, um, yeah, tensions that you navigate when trying to pull together this story? Yeah, it's a, it is, and it's very much indicative of the, you know the the history of Australia. So when we when I was studying the the history of these animals, you really get the stories of this continent as well. And of course, indigenous traditional owners uh, traditional owners of this con- continent have had um, tens and tens of thousands of years of interactions with the species in this book, the extinct species, and also the species that still su- uh, continue to survive, although threatened. Um, and so. 
Yeah, there's this rhetoric of discovery that comes through with the early naturalists, people like John Gould, where he's recording um, all of the species of Australia, really with the, with the perspective of bringing that information back to England, and, and also this uh, sort of lens of utility. And so it's kind of problematic the way that the, this land is viewed by those early naturalists you know, through that colonial gaze. So, yeah, taking that with a grain of salt and then also uh, trying where possible to really uh, get knowledge and stories from um, traditional, yeah, traditional owner knowledge and history and language as well. So I worked with an old professor, Dr John Bradley at Monash University, very early on to talk about how to sort of decolonise this text um, and language was a really good way of doing that. And I'm an Anglo-Australian, white Australian, but um, I try where possible to draw in, yeah, Indigenous languages and perspectives in the stories of these animals, but also acknowledging that um, where that information is missing, it's a real shame. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, that, that sort of comes to why you wanted to tackle the project in the way you do. I, I think about selecting artists that can, um, you know, work with that level of, I guess, interpretation and inspiration rather than working from, say, scientific detail or an existing picture and then redrawing or even a specimen, but actually working with, with descriptions and then bringing some, yeah, some flair to that and some heart to it as well. Is that kind of what you were looking for when selecting the artists who could work in that way? Yeah, I mean, the artists are so varied in the, in the book. There's so many different approaches and I think that was something that was really important. I think one thing that... I actually only realised recently when I, I think I got the book and I was looking through it and I was thinking, like, why is this, you know, what, what does the art do? And the art does a lot. Obviously, it communicates a whole heap of things that you can't really interpret through, I guess, scientific research or, or even just words. But it also brings us closer to these animals because we've got a person's interpretation of these animals and as they're you know depicting the species they're bringing themselves into the picture a little bit and we're seeing a human depiction of uh yeah their their understanding of these species their way of representing the species and that brings us i think a little bit closer and uh helps us to familiarize ourselves with with some of these species that have been sort of otherwise lost to the pages of history yeah, no, I mean, most of them, I understand, have become extinct um, post-colonisation. Um, 39 you've put, pulled into this book and you say at the outset that there's 121 Australian animals currently considered critically endangered as well. Tell us a little bit about which species you, you chose to, to represent in this book. Yeah, so I tried to make it some pretty clear boundaries. I kept it within the terrestrial, so land-based species, uh, just because marine species are sort of cross cross different national borders. Um, so that was one. You know, then there's also a number of island species in the book because island systems are really vulnerable to extinction pressures. Uh, and then within the last sort of three to 400 years, because that we sort of identify with these species, they, they, re they look like species that still currently exist. In fact, they're obviously mostly related to species that still exist as well. And also, yeah, the pressures that cause these extinctions, we, we can learn a lot from the mistakes of the last sort of 400 years of, of extinctions and also apply that to, to how we go forward in conserving those critically endangered, endangered and vulnerable species. I mean, we've got, got 50,000 odd years ago, there's the Megalania, which is like a truck-sized goanna, and then there's the Diprotodon, which is the big giant wombat. I mean, the megafauna are incredible species, but I don't think they really reflect our current impact on uh, the natural world and biodiversity and, and are a bit unrelatable, but amazing. Yeah, and I think, I mean, what, what was apparent to me is the incredible responsibility that um, people on this continent have to the species because many of them don't exist anywhere else because the, the separation of the Australian continent has been, um, you know, what was was so long ago, like millions of years mm. ago. And, I mean, do you see that we have added responsibilities um, compared to other parts of the world because of this sort of unique, the uniqueness of our animals? Um, yes, <laughs> I do. I think we do have certainly uh, a responsibility, you know, given that we're the people that live alongside these 
extremely unique species and vulnerable species in a lot of ways, uh, we, we certainly have a responsibility to the global community to look after them, um, the global community of people who in, like animals, just as, and I wrote this in the introduction, just like those who have a stronger influence on the you know, continued existence of giraffes or zebras or elephants. We don't have those animals here, but we would, I think, uh, hope that people that live amongst those animals are intending to cons you know, conserve them and, and ensure their existence into the future. And so, yeah, we're lucky enough to live a among kangaroos and wombats and koalas and platypuses and frogs and all of these incredible and unique and, as you say, um, species that don't exist on, or even species like these animals that don't exist anywhere else in the world. I think we have a responsibility to, yeah, ensure that they, they exist into the future, which is not a guarantee uh, given the current threats and pressures on our, on our biodiversity. Yeah, that's right. And I'm, I'm ecologists and historians with us, Benjamin Gray. Can we talk about some of the uh, the animals that you feature and and the artwork that goes along with it? So one of them um, caught my eye: the style, the Reg, Reg Mombasa, Chris O'Doherty um, piece, the Brambles Key and Melamy. Is it um, Melamy? Yeah, that's yeah. It. Tell us about that uh, that animal. Yeah, so the Bramble K. Melamy is actually the most recent extinction in the book. It was last recorded in 2009. And in 2019, it made global headlines being the first, announced as the first mammal extinction caused by anthropogenic climate change. It's actually really funny. You've got like people like Conan O'Brien talking about the Bramble K. Melamy, which hasn't happened uh, for any of the other animals in the book. Maybe the thylacine has a... A, a larger profile but yeah so sea level rise is one of the most certain consequences of climate change and this entire species inhabited a small cay which is like a low-lying island a coral cay in the Torres Strait and of course sea level rise and extreme weather ex increased extreme weather led to inundation of the island and also uh, lack of habitat available habitat for this species and in yeah 2009 the the last of this animal was recorded and you can just imagine this sort of mouse-like species being swept off by great seas into the ocean and that is a really powerful image of the, the and dramatic maybe overly dramatic <laughs> image of the of this extinction of this bramble cane melamine yeah i mean i think um yeah the red Mombasa picture kind of depicts the kind of the the horror in the eyes of that of the Brambles Cave Melamy in in the picture. Yeah. yeah, it's like it sort of goes with your story. Actually, it's um uh, really striking pictures that he's done. But so are the so is the the work of Tom O'Hearn and the Lake Petter Earthworm. I mean, that one is just maybe describe the picture first. But that story is also quite compelling. Yeah, I mean, I love that I love that picture as you say. And, yeah, so Tom is a Tasmanian artist and the Lake Petter earthworm is a Tasmanian species. But it's a really fascinating one, and I said earlier it's one of my favourites in the book because it really represents a lot of different uh, aspects of extinction and sort of overlooked aspects of extinction as well. And one of those is, you know, how do we value an earthworm that really doesn't do much for us emotionally or pragmatically? Um, what kind of value do we ascribe that and how do we decide its fate and so the Lake Pedder earthworm well the Lake Lake Pedder was a national park in Tasmania and probably some of the listeners might have even been there and in the late 60s yes yeah, so it was announced a protected area but then in the late 60s the, the government uh, discussed this hydroelectric scheme, which obviously is now Tassie's massive hydroelectric scheme. And as part of that, Lake Petter was announced to be flooded and the protection status of that area revoked. And to give you a sense of what happened, it went from nine kilometres squared to becoming 240 kilometres squared by the end of the project. And in amongst all of that, there was a heap of environmental opposition to this major you know, industrial project. And one of the things that happened was researchers discovered this earthworm, this really you know, unique earthworm, unique in that it only inhabited this beaches of this Lake Pedder. And so it was discovered because it was endangered 
and you know its discovery was sort of oh, discovered is a problematic term, but we it was recorded, uh, and you know that that, re- that record was implicit in its sort of extinction, and so its fate was already kind of sealed at the time of its discovery. Yeah, when people uh, when things are under threat, all of a sudden people start to look, and I wonder uh, if like it's been depicted in your book, it is bright red with sort of spiky um, fur or something with quite vicious-looking teeth, uh, Benjamin. Yeah. Or, or not. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I like to, I said this, this I like to imagine that that's like what the people who made those decisions see when they got, close their eyes to go to bed, you know. <laughs> this like haunting, like better earthworm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want that one <laughs> coming anywhere near your ear or something if you're going to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. Um, we're running out of time, but I did want to, I mean, you end the book on a, on a story of hope and a story about uh, the mountain pygmy possum and also the the bogong moth, and it sort of talks to that interdependency between species, but we thought we'd lost this particular pygmy, pygmy possum until it was rediscovered. Yeah, exactly. So it was found from a skull in the late 1800s and it, people at the time thought that it was extinct already and then no one saw it for the next 70 years and it was found in 1966 in a ski lodge in Mount Hotham. And in 1967 it was named the rarest animal on the earth. And since then we've discovered a couple more populations of the mountain pygmy possum and some of the listeners might know um, or have come across the mountain pygmy possum before at Mount Buller, Mount Hotham, um, in the alpine areas. And, yeah, there's a lot of threats facing the mountain pygmy possum. There's 2,000 left, uh, under 2,000 left, and they're, in, they're secured through conservation um, initiatives like a captive breeding program. But one of the pressures that faces the mountain pygmy possum is the depleting food source, and that food source is the bogong moth. Um, and the bogong moth comes down... As a mountain pygmy possum awakes from its hibernation to begin its reproduction uh, or breeding season, I guess you could call it, around two, two million bogong moths um, are coming down from New South Wales, Queensland, Canberra, the eastern, the northern and eastern states of the country to hibernate themselves in the summer in those alpine regions. And, of course, they lie, like there's heaps of them. They line the, the cave walls and it forms a really important food source for the mountain pygmy possum. But in the last few years, the 2018, the moths never made it. They never came. And then the following year came around and the moths never came again. And so there's a, there's a number of reasons why that might have been, but one of them was thought to be, you know, increased light pollution on that migration route. And we all know how moths are distracted by lights. And so, yeah, there was a, a citizen science program to turn off the lights for the bogong moth, and there's a number of other things going on. And I think in 2019 it was, they actually returned. And it just shows how, you know, we interact with animals in a way that impacts their lives and the interactions that they have with each other are incredibly symbiotic. And these complex ecosystems that we all live among um, are really really being influenced by, you know, human and human processes. Uh, but there's things that we can do, and it's sort of a success story, right, because these two animals, well, the pygmy possums are this beautiful, vulnerable, rare species, but we're doing a lot to ensure its continued existence, and the success story of the moths returning shows that um, there's, yeah, there's hope for the future for all of our uh, existing wildlife. Thanks so much, um, Benjamin, for spending some time on Triple R and all the best with the book. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful and, uh, yeah, Extinct Artistic Impressions of Our Lost Wildlife is its title. It's out through Syro Publishing and I don't know who, who you're imagining is going to be reading this book. I'm, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, kids, you know, quite young kids, but maybe maybe also a broader audience in that as well because it is, you know, targeted to just the curious individual I would I would put it but where do you see this where do you see this going well I mean I think that's a good answer I I, I agree I think it's, it's different people can get different things out of the book anyone who follows and enjoys Australian art will you know the, the artists in this book are some of yep. the best in the, in the country but then people who like animals people with curious it's written in a way that should be broadly accessible to a lot of people but it's also not um chastising so you don't read this book and get knocked over the head i hope 
we've you know we've done the wrong thing, we're bad. It's just a, it's a celebration, and it, it does more than the loss of these species. But um, I hope that everyone everyone has something to get to gain from it. Yeah, no, it, it reads just like this conversation's been, Benjamin. Very enjoyable. Thanks so much for being on Triple R. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much, uh, Benjamin um, uh, Gray there, the author of Extinct. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And Dylan's not with me here today, but it doesn't mean he can't be here in spirit or in voice. Uh, I've been looking forward to playing you this next extended interview with Brooklyn's Parquet Courts and Dylan Bird. Um, Parquet Courts has a new album out now, and Dylan took the chance to chat with singer-songwriter, singer and songwriter Austin Brown from the band a few weeks back about um, Parquet Courts' connection with Melbourne's music scene and plans for their new record. And we're going to hear, um, going into that conversation, we're going to first take a track from their latest release. It's called Walking at a Downtown Pace. And, uh, yeah, taking it from there, uh, you'll hear Dylan and Austin. And the new album's called Symphony for Life. If you haven't heard it yet, there's, we've been spinning a lot of tunes from it. Um, but sit back and enjoy this conversation with um, Dylan and Austin after this track.
Sisters walking at a downtown pace from Parquet Court's brand new seventh studio album, Sympathy for Life. Recently, I caught up with the band's co-lead singer, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Austin Brown to talk all about the release. As you might be aware, Parquet Courts have played many times in Melbourne over the years, most recently in 2019. And I started out by asking Austin about whether the band feels like they have a particularly special connection to this city. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we love it there. And, and beyond that, I think one of the first tours that we ever did in the States actually was with Total Control and UV Race. And all of those characters really became great friends over the years and we've really kept in touch and you know like to meet up whenever we're uh down under as you might say um and yeah the, 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 that was our first uh exposure to really that whole scene but but you know before that we were already acquainted with the great eddie current and um uh honestly i just think that the whole melbourne scene is endlessly uh inspiring and um always stoked to find out what else is coming out of there yeah and i heard when you were on with um our very own vaughan quinn last year you've even adopted collingwood as your football team which i was pretty happy to hear about as well so becoming more melbournian by the day (laughs) oh that's great because you know some people are either really happy to hear that or really pissed off (laughs) you're happy (laughs) absolutely well i'm one of the happy ones for sure (laughs) Great. <laughs> um, and I suppose reflecting on cities and, and what makes cities special, um, one of the, the singles to come out from this album so far, Walking at a Downtown Pace, kind of riffs on the experiences of being in lockdown, um, where you are obviously in New York. We've just emerged from lockdown here in Melbourne, but still have a, a number of restrictions. What's it like in New York at the moment? What's kind of daily life like for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that uh, you bring that up because Downtown Pace was actually recorded and written before the lockdown. Um, And it was really coincidental how a lot of the themes uh, run into the same things that are brought to the surface during uh, this pandemic. You know, there's there's even lyrical uh, talk about masks and and things like that in Downtown Pace and, you know, in, in at that time, the lyrics were metaphorical and then the now they seem quite literal. And I think that happens a lot on this record. Uh, 10 out of 11 songs were, were written and recorded before the pandemic. And uh, there were a lot of themes of, you know, there it, it was human themes. It was themes of people uh, dealing with uh, their own personalities or ego or um, how they relate to the world, you know, to, to give it pretty broad strokes. But I think like for everybody on the whole throughout the pandemic, these are um, emotions that are super on the surface. And I think that a lot of the lyrics are kind of read in a different way. And these songs take on a new meaning and a new tone throughout the uh, current state of things. And, and um, to speak to New York, yeah, things are like, I guess, back uh, in air quotes, but uh, there still is like a massive trauma that's happening and people are still trying to figure out like um, how they feel about everything and, and what happened even and, and what is happening and in and, and which ways we can move forward productively. We've been playing concerts and some have been inside, most of them outside and reception to that is is different but honestly it's really exciting and it's hard really to say what's what's right or wrong uh you know now that we have the vaccine and and certain uh precautions in place but uh, one thing that i feel really strongly about is that community is massively important in the way that we interact with each other um face to face in daily life is something that we need to perhaps relearn how to do in a in a a loving and tender way. And I think that over the past year, a lot of people have developed a very uh, uh, me first kind of attitude that is hard to, to deal with. And um, I think that we'll be doing a lot of unlearning and, and hopefully evolving as the, as the years move forward to create space for a more 
uh, healthy community. Because that, that's something that I don't think we can afford to lose, especially uh, in the age of Zoom meetings and, and things of that nature. <laughs> Zoom interviews, yeah, it's good as they are. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is normal for us because we're so far away. This is, this is better because otherwise it's just be on the telephone and the reception's horrible. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> There's always delay and all of that sort of stuff. And I can see you, which is great as well. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You look great, by the way. Oh, so do you. Yeah, nice and clear. I don't know if everybody on the radio knows that, but you're dealing with a real handsome guy here. <laughs> right back at you. Thanks so much. <laughs> um, I mean, your music, it's always appealed to me because it's had this real sort of upbeat, sort of raw energy to it, but has also dealt with really important social and political themes as well. And, and Wide Awake, your, your uh, previous album, really tapped into that too. And it's interesting to hear that this album, Sympathy for Life, is, you know, exploring the importance of community and connection, which is a really fundamental role that music plays and going along to gigs is, you know, something that so many of us have, have missed at the moment. Is that, was that the intention behind calling the album Sympathy for Life to really sort of highlight some of that sentiment? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I think the community that um, that I've found lately through uh, dance music and, and uh, rave and, and party culture has really been a massive influence on me and a real inspiration. I think like um, that there's a, a, a sense that um, through through community and, and um, social work together, we can overcome just about anything. I, and I, I often think back to characters that preached love over anger and uh, community over individualism. Like, I mean, lovable people like John Lennon, who all you need is love, but Bob Marley, uh, but also Martin Luther King. And, and these were looked at as dangerous figures in society. And, you know, they were murdered for it. And I think that people uh, too often consider love and community as weakness or a crutch, when in reality, it's the most dangerous instrument that we have against um, uh systemic oppression and and the things that we don't like about the world and and oftentimes these are things that we act react to with um with anger and uh and and violence and uh i think that um although those things feel good in the moment and um they're just not the ways that we can be productive and Sympathy for life is about having an understanding for the other and having a sense of uh, shared experience, which uh, I think is honestly the the most powerful uh, tool in in which we have to operate and 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 also the most rewarding and it's it's not just uh, a form of uh, protest or um, a tool in which to conquer, but it, it, it's also the most rewarding life experience that we can have is, is to share, I think. I mean, you mentioned the influence of sort of, you know, dance and, and sort of, you know, rave culture coming through in, into this as well. And Wide Awake was, um, I suppose, you know, notably some kind of departure from some of your previous records. I mean, all of them have been unique in their own way, but more sort of bass and, and drums driven, a little bit more rhythmic. Um, this feels like it 
it follows on from some of those themes, but almost takes a little bit more of an electronic bent as well. Um, and I noticed you've worked with uh, Rodé McDonald and, and John Parrish in putting this album together. What were you trying to do musically with this record? Yeah, I, I think you're right. A lot of our um, records, or all of our records, I like to consider as a, a evolution upon previous themes and things like that. But it also just reflects um, where we are in our personal lives and things that uh, we happen to be inspired by at the moment. And um, for me, that was a, a dance culture, rave uh, culture is a huge part of that. And um, I think one thing that I really fell in love with was that it's um, really community based and, um, and really uh, about being in the present and it's uh, it's sort of like a temporary thing, the party, and and you do everything you can to make that uh, experience as as the the best you can for for everybody and, and yourself in that moment because the sun's going to come up and you want the right song to be there when the sun rises and and these sorts of things and I, the kinds of music I was hearing at these parties was new and but sort sometimes familiar and. Um, I just the the experience is so much different than being at a rock concert, which I think is super uh, unidirectional, where you have these uh, figures on stage that are sort of like faux celebrities, in which we are really obsessed with like their personal lives or whatever they have to say on Instagram or or whatever, you know. And um, everyone watches them do their thing and they leave, but a, a party is just about everyone in there together and so different and refreshing for me. And I, I know that there's people that are listening that just um, have been doing this forever, but for me, it was a new thing and it, it was um, a massive point of inspiration. And, um, you know, in the way that we were able to draw this into our own music, I, I like to put uh, Primal Scream, Scream and Delica and, and their work with Andrew Weatherall as kind of a, a keystone of context and, for me, it was sort of the same thing that I was going through personally, where um, these are guys like in a rock band that, um, you know, began going to uh, raves when Acid House was really kicking off in, in the north of England or all of England. And um, and the way that they were able to channel that uh, energy and that, that sonic influence into their own music was uh, something that, I felt like uh, we could do. I felt like that was sort of like the foundation for that. That was like the, the precursor. I don't think that our record sounds like Scream Adelka at all. It was just that the way that they were able to uh, channel their inspiration into well, what they do as a group was really what we were looking at a lot um, in the process in which we were working. And uh, yeah, I feel really, really uh, proud about what we made just because of how I think it reflects where we're at personally from the music to, uh, and not only the lyrics. Yeah. And it's interesting as well that, you know, you've kind of, um, you know, not quite reinvented yourselves, but very much done your own thing on, on different records. And there was a sort of, uh, you know, hilariously bad review of your, your EP Monastic Living in Pitchfork some years ago, which you just kind of shrugged off and like, yeah, well, that was fun. That's what we were doing and we like it. So that's fine. Do you uh, sort of worry about reviews or how records will be received at all when you're making them? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, I, um, I didn't even think that they would review that album or ever consider it um, because, you know, obviously we don't make it um, for them, especially if they don't like it. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting that you bring that album up because I think that um, I think I've been thinking about that, that album a lot lately and how it relates to the process in which we worked for Sympathy for Life. Um, seven of the 11 songs on Sympathy for Life were crafted from uh, improvisations, not totally unlike monastic living. I think the, the difference being that we uh, worked with uh, Roddy McDonald, which you had mentioned earlier, and um, the, the space that he was able to create for us to experiment and um, 
progress these sort of improvisations in into uh, songs, like actual songs, <laughs> and uh, that that was a, a huge goal of mine from the beginning, and I think a huge step for the group because we were really collaborating and improvising in the room and listening to each other and playing off each other in a way that only we could do and in a way that only a band that's been together for 10 years could do. And we would be improvising on different instruments. And I had like a, like a Lee Scratch Perry style dub station set up in which I was playing other people's instruments at the same time and affecting them and, and using, um, you know, different production tricks live in the room. And we would do this for 30, 40 minute stretches and then spend time editing them in, in the tracks. And, and um, I think through that process, we we're able to get to some really unique sonic spaces and really hear ourselves as we are. It's great to see that you've got a bunch of dates um, in the States to tour at the moment, but you've also got some really interesting events to coincide with the album's release coming up in, in future weeks all around the world. Um, what's the idea behind those and, and tell us kind of how they'll work? Yeah, so our band doesn't really have much of a presence on the internet, um, which I think is um, well, it's unique at least, <laughs> um, but it makes things like uh, connecting with your fans just a bit different. And I think that one thing that I've always enjoyed about our concerts is that all of our it's putting all of our followers and fans in uh, the same room where they can create this sense of community around something that I think is really positive and, and make new friends and, um, you know, all, all of those things that are great about meeting up together. <laughs> and so for this, we've, um, we've created these 11 events around the world, which we think can rally community around, um, uh, around and around the record and, and have people meet who wouldn't otherwise, uh, know to, to do so because they're not, you know, in the comments or, or whatever, wherever they, else they might be. And, I think it feels really organic and really fun and kind of, um, and it's kind of exciting. We've debuted some new songs that way and we've got some really special, um, merch that people might want to have that would be unique to them. And it's just about sort of creating a sense of community and face-to-face interaction at a time where people haven't had that. And I think giving them a positive reason to do it, that's not like, going to the grocery store like jail or something (laughs) yeah and and people can find out about those by signing up via your websites for for updates i understand absolutely it's parquet-courts.com and 
It should all be there. I don't check it every day, but um, you should. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, thanks so much for, for spending some time with us today. Um, massive congratulations on the album. It's a, it's a really brilliant record. I was so excited to, to hear it, to get an advanced stream, and um, it absolutely didn't disappoint at all. So thanks so much. Really hope you can get back down to Melbourne sometime soon and, and maybe head along to a footy game when you're here as well. <laughs> absolutely. would love nothing more. <laughs> cool. Thanks heaps, Austin. Cheers. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. You all have a good day. Austin Brown there, co-lead singer, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist with Parquet Courts. Their new album, Sympathy for Life, is out now through Rough Trade Records. You can get it in all the usual places. And to go out, we'll take one more track from the release. This one is Homo Sapien. <laughs> Everything I want, life, 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 life,
everything I need Life part, life part, life part, life part Found here, full of gold The birds have secrets, so I'm told Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.